Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. I'm April Vokey, and you are listening to Anchored. My chance to speak with some of the most influential people involved in the outdoors today. Join me as I travel to sit face-to-face with my guests in their own homes to learn more about their careers, opinions, history, relationships, and life both indoors and out. Meredith McCord is a keen angler, professional trip host, and world traveler. Today she holds 180 records through the IGFA, and she shows no signs of slowing down. Meredith has worked her entire career to make it so that she can fish as often as possible. In part one of this two-part episode of Anchored, we discuss chasing records, how she got into the fishing industry, and the rumors she'd like to address. I was born and raised in Houston, Texas. (laughs) You are a Southern belle. I am. You you a really Texas are belt. actually. We kind of distinguish ourselves apart from the South. Really? Yeah, we do. <laughs> In what kind of way? Um, like, what about an Arkansas bell? Yeah, very different. Very different. <laughs> We're a little bit on the wilder side. Um, we do things our own way. The women in Texas are a little bit more outdoorsy than I think the general South. Oh, interesting. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So um, I am going to ask you your age. You don't have to answer, but I ask everybody. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm in my forties. And I think you should be proud of that yes, because you are so hot. It's ridiculous. <laughs> um, very sweet. Don't feel it always. But while you look at here, we're Thank at the you. show. We're at IFTD in Denver. I've just looked at your list of travel. In fact, I have it in my hand. And I can honestly say that I don't envy you. It looks like you are constantly either in an airplane or a boat. You know, I am. And... um you know, the airplane is just the vehicle of getting there, but the the anticipation that builds every hour of every minute of that plane trip is worth every second. Mm-hmm. And we will come back to that because I've got a lot of questions about this travel. But first, let's start off with what you were like when you were a little girl. Did you have 
siblings? I do. I'm the oldest of three. I've got a brother, Ryan, 15 months younger, who thought he was older, but he is not older. And I still have to tell him today he's not older <laughs> and he's not the boss of me. Um, is and then anyone I, the, boss, no. the boss of you, Meredith? Well, my parents were definitely the boss of me and they <laughs> okay. let me know time and time again. And then I have a younger sister who's my best friend and she's three years younger than me. All right. So you're really close with her. We're very tight. We're a very tight family. And you said you're close with your brother's Wife well. is another one of my best friends, and um, we we spend a lot of time together. So, what was it like growing up? Were your parents outdoorsy? They were. My mom was kind of brought into it when she married my dad. She was born to a big fisherman and a hunter, but she had never really done it herself because her dad kind of brought her up as like, "Oh, you're going to be your mom's." protege and my two boys will be my protege. So my grandfather, my maternal grandfather would teach the boys how to golf and fish and hunt. Whereas my mom would sew and cook and those type of things. So when she married my dad, whose mother, my grandmother, who unfortunately just passed two weeks ago at the, how old would she be? She was a 107, two oh weeks shy of her 108th birthday. Wow. Yes, I know. Incredible. In April, she fished until she was 97. What? 97 years old. She caught a 22-pound pike. Um, not on fly, but on conventional, so. but she, she went until the end. She definitely was um, a woman I looked up to, and that's kind of what my mom married into, is a family where both women in the family and men in the family were outdoors people. And they shared that together, that my grandfather never did anything without taking my grandmother with him. And then as we grew up, to answer your question, my dad never went fishing or hunting on a boys' trip or anything like that. He always just wanted to take his kids. And so it was really special. He did not see a difference between my brother and I and my sister as, hey, this is girl's thing to do or a boy thing to do. And I really appreciate that. He just wanted to share his loves and hobbies with us. It did not matter gender. And I yeah. appreciate that. Yeah, that's amazing. Okay, so they looked at it differently. You were not going to be your mom's protege. No. And I do love, actually, I do love to cook. And my sister does love to sew. And we picked up those feminine qualities. But there's a lot of men out there that like to cook and sew too. So I think today's age, I mean, it's all interspersed. Yeah. Um, but I, so I grew up, yes, a lot in the outdoors. We grew up in Houston, concrete jungle of the U.S., um, third largest, well, fourth, growing to be the third largest city in the U.S. Dad needed to be there for business, but insisted on taking us to the country every weekend. He just hated living in the city. So in the mid, um, let's see, I think it must have been early 80s. Actually, it's kind of a funny story. Dad went to an auction and he and his brother might have had a couple of cocktails and they bid on donkeys. Both of them ended up going home that night with miniature Sicilian donkeys. Well, in the city of Houston, you're not allowed to have livestock in your backyard. No. <laughs> and for about six months, we did. We, we had a black lab and a donkey, and they were best friends, and they would roam around our backyard together. But we, you know, the, the city told us that we needed to find a new home for Joni was her name. Right. So in 80, I think 1980, my dad bought property outside the city. So we would have a home for Joni. Oh, I think so it was he, a grand plan. He didn't get rid of her. He, oh, no. He no, sounds no. like he had a really kind... Is he still here? No, no. I've lost my dad. Oh, um, it will be four, we- four years next week. It sounds like he yeah. was a really kind man. He was a kind man, funny, <laughs> um, and just had a love for people... And uh, the great outdoors, for sure. Yeah. 
Okay. So, so that's where I was raised on that farm. Was his passion fly fishing, hunting, regular fishing, hiking? What was his passion? That's a great question. He his big loves were duck hunting, dove hunting, okay, and then uh, conventional fishing. Right. He was not into fly fishing. I my grandparents did it. Some I remember seeing a little bit of it as a child, but really fly fishing didn't enter my dad or I's lives until about the mid nineties. Okay. Did it happen together? No, separate. And we both kind of learned separately, but simultaneously at the same time through different avenues. And then we came together and we're able to do it together. So in the 90s, where where am I looking at in your timeline? Were you graduated yet? So in the 90s, uh, yes, I was going through high school and college. Did you fish through school? um, You know, I always did. So, okay, every weekend was on bass ponds. Okay, so I grew up catching bass. I have pictures of myself at three or four years old with a cane pole catfish or a spinning rod and um, nice-sized bass. And then also one of the wonderful things I was exposed to as a child was the wonderful country of Canada. Um, My grandparents in the 50s saw an ad on the back of Field and Stream magazine that they were selling properties in Canada, in Ontario. And my grandmother had grown up in Wisconsin for muskie fishing. So she loved muskies. And so when they made a little bit of money, my grandfather was a wildcatter. He went to his sons and he said, and to his wife, and he said, hey, we have a little bit of money in the bank now for the first time ever. He was a self-made man. And he said, we can either go on a freighter boat over to Europe for several weeks, or we can buy this piece of property up in Canada where they have great muskie fishing. That was the whole goal. And the boys said, are there going to be bears? And grandfather said, yes. Is there fishing? Yes. Well, then we want to go to Canada. Awesome. So in 1954, my grandfather bought a a little island up there for $17,000. and had three cabins, A whole island. It's one acre. And it had three log cabins on it, propane, electricity. And um, it was just the basics. And that's where my dad and his three brothers grew up every summer. The year I was born, I was born in February, that summer I went, and I've only missed one summer, and it was the year that my dad died. But so for every summer of my life, I went to Canada fishing, water skiing, outdoor sports, you know, everything that you can come up with. So you guys still have the island? We still have the island. You know, after years, uh, the island got a little tight for the four boys, all who had kids within seven years of each other. And there was 12 of us cousins that are all very tight. And all the uncles wanted to come. Well, we couldn't all be there at the same time. So individually, we started to buy little places around my grandparents' place. And so now that's what we have. We've got my uncle has a place, my other uncle has a place, and then we have our own place. Are they all little islands? Yeah, tiny little islands in the middle Everyone of nowhere. Everyone just owns their own yep. island? And it's like, you, you, it sounds like glamorous, but this is like a granite rock with a couple of pine trees on it and yeah. a, like a log cabin. Yeah, no, I've it's seen a camp. little island. Those yeah, are, they're great. They're camps. And yeah, so but fishing it's re- camps. Remote and very remote. But one of the my fondest things about it was that whether we were at the farm or in Canada, family was your best friends because there was no one else, you know? Mm-hmm. And so I didn't grow up playing sports because we were away and there was no time for games. And so that that really plays into who I am today because I didn't realize at that time. I was competitive and I am sporty. I didn't think of sports as being fishing and hunting. I thought of sports as playing soccer or basketball, but I never did that growing up. And now in later years, I'm finding that I am competitive. <laughs> Are you? <laughs> Just a slightly. I didn't even know it existed. Actually, I actually don't know. Well, I guess you, I guess, yeah, you would be competitive with the IGFA stuff. Yeah, competitive with myself. Which we'll get to. Yeah, because yeah. I don't see you as being, I do meet women in the industry who are 
properly competitive. Oh, I'm not with other people. No, it's I don't me feel myself. That way at all. Competitive with myself, like wanting to always be better. I definitely like, see that. Yeah. I definitely see that. Okay. So tell me about this story in the nineties. How did fly fishing come into your life? Um, oh gosh, it's, it's the cheesy answer. Your boyfriend taught you? No. Come on. What's the other reason? What movie came out in the nineties? Oh, that's not that bad. It's pretty bad, but I, I did. I was a sucker. I grew up, my dad loved the movie, The Sting. And Robert Redford, that was his kind of hero. And um, so when River Run, Run Stewart came out, Robert Redford, as you know, was a narrator. It wasn't Brad Pitt for me. It was Robert Redford in the way that Fair he, enough. yeah, and his <laughs> voice, and it just takes you in. But I love the brotherly competition. You know, and we talk about that all the time. And that's, I don't remember, I remember it was a sad movie, and I actually only saw it once. But I remember it was a sad movie, but the one that just struck me is when they lay their two fish down next to each other. Well, one, him going down the river, but when they lay their two fish next to each other and one was bigger than the other. And that's my brother, sister, and I. I mean, that was growing up our whole lives. It was like my brother always trying to outfish me. I connected with that, but I was like, that's beautiful. And I'm an artist. And I felt like, God, that's really that. I don't know. Something harmonizes with me in that. Simultaneously, my parents had just bought a home down in um, Belize on Ambergris K. Cool. And I had witnessed people doing this, moving their rod back and forth in the air, painting the sky with this rod. And I had never seen movements like that other than the river runs through it. And I said, they're fly fishing in the salt. I didn't even know that that was a thing. And um, so I started asking around where we had bought. And sure enough, there was a guide that was willing to kind of show me how to get it done. And so I went out and my first fishing was bone fishing. And I was hooked. And then from there, I went to Jackson Hole after I graduated from college with the intent only to learn how to fly fish. I thought I could master it in the summer and then I would be a professional after I finished. What my, kind of professional? What was your Well, not plan? professional, professional, but I thought I would be really good at it right. after, <laughs> at the end of the summer. And I had no idea. It's, it's like golf. It's going to take a lifetime. Yeah. And even when you think, yeah, no, you'll never know everything. No. Right? No. No. But you know what? The day that I quit learning, fire me. Right. Like that, that, you know, <laughs> I love, else. yeah, I love learning and I love every trip, every fish. I learned something new. Now this was the nineties. This was the nineties. So went out there, but dad made me promise that I would, he, okay, this is how it worked. The day I graduated from school, I was cut off. No more. High school? No, college. What did you take in college? Um, I majored in leadership and management and then had a minor in art studio. I'm an artist. Right. Can, what kind and of, so, before we go, before you go further, yeah. what kind of art? Um, I'm a painter. Crap. What kind of painting? You know, I used to paint fish. I was a big scuba diver back then and fisherman. So like watercolor? Or? I did it all. I did watercolor, oil. I got lazy. Don't like cleaning brushes. So I went to acrylic, but they dry too fast. You know, I, I did it all. Do Wasn't still- looking to make a living out of it, but okay. just... I loved it and found that I had some talent for it. So, Do you still paint? Um, so that is what I did for about 20 years yeah. with that business that I started that I was referring to earlier. And, and I will come back to that because yeah. I know people are like, wait, what is she talking about? Yeah, what is she talking Tell about? Yeah. Well, we'll get to that. Okay. But, but um, can we buy your paintings? Or they, no. There's none no. that no, are No, I don't do anything available. like that. No, <laughs> no. Do not no I'm not that good. I'm not, a, yeah. well, no, <laughs> I'm not a real artist. Okay, so go back. So you got cut off. So, Dad so said, I got cut off, but he agreed to pay my car insurance for four months and my health insurance for four months while I was at out in Jackson Hole as long as I would have a job to come back to. So I I went to Atlanta, interviewed a bunch, got a couple of offers to go into real estate. That's what my family was in. I had gotten licensed as a realtor and a broker when I was 18. So I was, I loved, I love selling. I'm a salesperson 
promoting, whatever. And um, so I did that, worked for a developer. So I had this job lined up. So he did that. I went out there and I learned and I realized real quickly it was hard. It's not easy. And the first place I ever got taken was to the fire hole, which apparently, and I haven't been back to Jackson Hole since, sadly, but I hear that that's a really tough place to catch trout. But I did and I loved it. And I had a bunch of guys around me from Vanderbilt where I had gone to university that have houses out there that were willing to teach me. I remember going in and buying my very first no-name fly rod with a little Ross reel uh, on a very limited budget. It was a two-piece back then. And the man that sold it to me, and I'm so sad that I don't remember his name, but he was so enthralled that this little 22-year-old was girl was in there, blonde girl in there, buying this rod that he's like, would you like me to give you lessons while you, you know, in between you fishing with your friends? And I said, I would love that. And I'm sick that I don't remember his name, but he would take me to the country club and practice with me on the little ponds there at the golf course. And then even took me over to Idaho one day and he was probably in his sixties. So if anybody out there that's listening knows or remembers who that could have been, this was 1996 Jackson Hole is a fly shop in town. Don't even know the name. But that guy really was my first lessons that I ever took. Um, official lessons. Was Someone that, might know who this is. I'm curious. That would be cool. Will you keep me posted? If yeah, I will. I will. What was it like for you back then? Because, I mean, you're attractive, obviously. Were you always blonde and soft-spoken <laughs> and a Southern belle? Uh, were you no. timid? What were you like? Were you obnoxious? Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a great we're, question. We're all very different in our 20s, right? So, Yeah, no, very, very. And actually, no, I'm just laughing because I was sharing some childhood photos with Nick Bowles recently of Ocean Active, um, who's a good friend of mine who I know you fished with. And um, I shared a photo with him that just nearly, I wish I'd been with him because I know that he fell out of his chair when he saw it. But no, I haven't, I I haven't always been um, put together. I have super frizzy, crazy hair. You do. I do. I and it and I had a fro. I mean, I just I I was a very awkward, ugly child. I will I I won't lie. And my we didn't have YouTube back then. We didn't have all these all the, the internet to know yes. how my mom didn't know what to do with my hair. And so she brushed it. Well, if you have curly hair, you can't brush it, no. you know, and she just didn't know. And so instead of trying to figure it out or asking around, she cut it short, which is even worse. And so I look like a fuzzy Q-tip. I was <laughs> tiny, skinny. I look like a bean pole and I had this fro and I'm going to show you this picture I later. I mean, it's so heinous. It's so heinous. And so, no, I was awkward. I mean, I was, a, I was not a cute kid. I um, thought you were like the hot chick cheerleader in school. Oh no. Never okay. made the cheerleading team. Still can't do a cartwheel. <laughs> Absolutely not. Not coordinated. Uh, so no, I was kind of, I was the girl in high school and college that you know, my family was my best friend, but I circulated amongst all the groups. I was friends with everyone. I was friends with the jocks, the nerds, you know, the outliers. I just, I like people. And I was kind of that one person that kind of floated, but had a good core of friends, but I, I just liked people. Yeah. And um, I would be the common denominator. And it's funny because that's followed me through where I am today in these hosting these trips. Because when my parents bought this house in Belize, I saw like, oh, dude party house. And so I started inviting people down to our house in Belize and I would assign theme nights every night. And I would assign three people who didn't necessarily know each other for the theme, whether it was like reggae night or like shaken, not stirred. And you 
the bartenders had to be an outfit. They had to come up with a drink mix and a playlist. Okay. Out of my out of my little soirees and hosted trips of my friends and friends of friends, I married off five couples. Some party. Yeah, I know. So yes, I was awkward, but always loved just connecting with different people and then started finding my rhythm. I think, I don't know, mid-20s. It took me a little while. No, that's okay. <laughs> what was it? I mean, what were they like with you? What was the industry like to you back then? Oh, I didn't know there was an industry. What were the guys on the river like with you? I was oblivious. Okay. I just did my thing. Yeah. And you know, a lot of times, and I didn't do a lot of river fishing. It was that one time in Jackson that I did river. And then from there on out, it was really just Belize saltwater fishing. And that was always with my dad and my guide, George Bradley, who's still guiding today. And that, you know, that was it. I didn't have a lot of, you know, there's a lot of talk of barriers and obstacles that women are having to overcome. I don't remember any of that. And maybe that's just my personality where I just kind of like do my thing. And I, I, no, you would remember them if they happened to you. Yeah. And I have a pretty bold personality and, but I, I've, I've never felt a lot of, I mean, I've felt barriers and we can go into that later, but it's not in regards to that. See, that's interesting. I had Jen Ripple on here and we were talking about that exact the exact sentence you just said about the women who don't have any barriers or say that, you know, say, what's the problem more of us with this 50, 50, I've never experienced a barrier. And we were talking about, uh, or we were discussing how some women truly just, they genuinely have been surrounded by this incredible group of people and they've never had to experience those barriers. So they just don't know that they exist, which is great. But right. that just because they haven't experienced them doesn't mean that they don't exist. Like I've experienced barriers that are shocking. And I have other girlfriends who have been, they've been in situations like the Harvey Weinstein thing where they've been invited on a trip and they have felt pressure to sleep with somebody because they've oh, been gosh. invited. I was invited on a trip to, uh, where was it going? To the Seychelles with a lodge owner from the Bahamas and uh, that I'd met when I was working. This isn't, I mean, this is, I was an adult at this point and, he had invited me on this trip and I've t- taken lots of trips with men before. And right. I just had a really weird feeling about this one. And I called him and I said, you know, just so you know, like, like I really like you. And he's like 60. And I said, just so you know, I, I'm, if you, like, I'm not going to have sex with you. I just want you to understand that. And I mean, I think I said it professionally and he totally appreciated it. And he said, I've got, well, I'm going to be honest with you. I was expecting that we were. So no way. And yeah, he was, and I was totally honest. And I said, well, I'll, like, I'll, we'll call him Bob. It's not, it's not him. Said, Bob, you're hilarious, but it's not happening. And I'm sorry. So I probably shouldn't go on this trip. He said, look, I really appreciate your honesty. I'll, he said, you just saved us both some embarrassment because I, I was going to try. And that was kind of my expectation. And so we called off the trip. Yeah. Wow. And I appreciate that, but no, there are. I know that they exist. They exist. I know that they that do. That casting couch. I've had. I've had girlfriends put in those scenarios before, and have given in in those scenarios. And uh, and I often think about them when I think about this whole Me Too thing. But but that's just one part of like that's just one barrier. There are countless other barriers. Right. I've had men yell at me on the river to go home and make sandwiches. No. Oh yeah, <laughs> big time. Oh my gosh. Okay, see, I I haven't experienced that. Oh yeah, no, and, and you should, and that's not even factoring in fly shops or the internet. I'll tell you. So I mean, kind of the opposite of that, where I felt very much the minority is I recently went out to. I wasn't even planning on telling the story, but it's kind of funny. I went out to Reno to go look for cutthroats. I chase records. We'll get to that. And I wanted to catch a big cutty. And they do something really weird there. 
I've never seen it <laughs> ever. Um, I had heard about it right before. I kind of did some research right before I went out there. And they stand on ladders. Yeah. Have you heard about this? Of course. Okay. I've seen yeah. it. Have yeah. you seen it? It's amazing. Super weird. Wow. Super weird. And you're perched up on the top of this like six foot A-frame ladder and you're casting. You're blind casting, hoping that these fish swim in front of you and you're it's on a sandbar. Anyway, I was in this lineup of about 40 men, okay? And I'm the only female out there on this day. Beautiful day, freezing cold, really had rarely been colder. <laughs> yes. And my guide, who I didn't know well, but had been so kind, I, with my waders on, I wasn't tall enough to make it through the goalie to the sandbar. So he like sherpa me, putting me on his back like a bag of potatoes, took me out to my ladder over his shoulder so that I could get there without getting water in my waders, put me on my ladder and my perch. And he goes back and stands behind, you know, on the mainland and stands behind me. And so apparently word gets out. People are like, who's this girl? Why is she out here? You know, da, da, da. Well, word gets out that I'm trying to catch a record. So guys start coming down and start hollering out at me. Hey, how's it going? Have you gotten it? And I think I've got a fly for you. And so they were coming down. It was the sweetest thing ever. And I, I, I kind of got a little cheering squad going behind me. <laughs> and, and I kept catching like five pounders and I just needed a little bit bigger fish, but I just wasn't having the luck. And this guy next to me on the ladder, God, I wish I'd remember his name. But he and I, you know, talking it up and we're talking and he's like, exactly what are you looking for and how do you do this? And I'm giving him the whole education. He kept catching 10 pounders back to back. And I'm like, I mean, send some my way. I mean, we're right next to each other. We're not, we're literally 20 feet away from each other. And so he catches one more and he goes, Hey, I'm going to, I'm going to head in. I'm I'm a local here. I've done my thing. I'm going to open up this spot for somebody else, but send me over your fly line. So I cast my fly over to him. He caught it. And he's like, I'm tying on my special fly. And he cut his own fly off that he had just caught like three 10-pounders on, tied it onto my um, my fly. So it was dangling off my fly. And he's like, I want you to have this. Now go catch your record. And so that's the kind of thing that I'm seeing is this like cheering squad of people saying, you go do your thing. We're proud of you. Good for you for being out here. And uh, when I got back to shore, he had left with my guide a picture of himself. I mean, this is like a, like a 70 year old guy. Yeah. And like, in like three flies and he's like, best of luck. It was a pleasure fishing next to you. I hope you get what you're looking for. Did you get it? I did not. (laughs) (laughs) But But that's part of the, you know, that's part of looking for records. And there's, and that's 90% of that. For every bad experience, there are 10 great ones. Yeah. Amen to that. But it's impossible to forget the bad ones. I can't believe you haven't had any barriers. I thought for sure. I mean, I guarantee that you have, but maybe you don't know that they've been there. I have, but they're in very, it's it's not on the river. Hidden. You, you don't remember any face-to-face encounters? No. Mine, where I feel the barrier is the feeling of being excluded from the boys' crew. A bunch of guys are like, hey, we're going to go on this trip. It's going to be so fun. But then they look at me and they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, you can't. You know, it's a boys' trip. And that's where I feel it. Or, you know, a couple of guys are going somewhere, but they're like, you can't come because what would our wives say? And they don't oh, understand, yeah. Yeah, yeah. you know, that I'm not a predator out there trying to steal their husbands. And some guys can't come on my hosted trips because their wives are like, I don't want you going with that blonde woman on a trip. Absolutely. And so my goal there is just to get as many people meeting me as possible. Cause I feel like if they were to meet me, if these wives were to meet me, they would know I'm not out after their husbands. They're safe with me. I hold myself in a very professional manner. I'm not going to flirt with their husbands. I'm not going to wear anything provocative. 
I, I lead my, my groups and my teams in a very professional manner. And, um, but that's where I, I would say if I, if I hit a barrier, it's a feeling of being left out yeah. on the, on the parties or because I can't go because there's not separate accommodation for me. Sure. With a bunch of married guys. So a lot of that's just societal. Yeah, that's societal. And I I get that. Like, I don't want to room with a married man either. Yeah. You know, that's not good for anybody's image. And so, I mean, I get it, but it's still, it's hard because I feel left out sometimes. Yep. Yep. Do you any, do you do any women's only stuff? Like I see on your host of travel, you do a ton of couple stuff. Oh, here you go. Ladies hosted fishing trip. I do. Yeah. You know, I'll, I'll tell you about that. This is interesting, April. Um, I've, I've always liked men. I, I have a lot of good guy friends. I enjoy the company of men. I have a solid group of single, uh, like like really good, good girlfriends, but I'm not kind of a girl's girl. I'm more of, I, I've always just enjoyed outdoor sports and, you know, so forth. So it's always kind of grouped me with men. So I've always kind of hosted men from the time that I started pulling together these groups and working for Tailwaters and other outfitters. I, I've always hosted mostly men. And then David from Tailwaters, who owns Tailwaters Travel, asked me, he's like, you know what? I think you should host a women's group. I'm like, no. Really? Yeah. I was like, no, I don't want to do it. I'll let, you know, Jen do that. She's great with women. There's all these great women out there that are doing amazing things. I'm going to let them lead the women. Oh, but they're so much fun. Well, I just was, all I could think about is that they're not going to want to fish hard. They're going to be high maintenance. There's going to be drama. (laughs) And I just don't have patience for it. Okay. You know, I don't want them to be like, you know, oh my God, like I broke my nail or no. oh, I'm tired now. Can we go back? Can we go home? Like, you know, and so what I did, I, I so I, I said to David, you know what? The more and more I think about this, because I kept getting women hitting me up on Instagram. Hey, do you ever do any women specific events? And I kept getting kind of the push and the push and the push. And I'm like, so I t- called David and I was like, what if I do this? What if we do a permit trip? Because that's only, that's going to call for hardcore, right? So hopefully more people like myself that really like, I could fish all day. I mean, risky move, but okay. I like, yes, I, I, I know. see where you're at. Yeah. Tough, tough. Because move, otherwise, right? or you might just get people who are desperate to go with you and they can't fish for shit. And maybe some of that, but it was a filter. It was a filter that I put on the trip okay. because, and I was really honest. This is a really hard fish. If you've never done this before, like this is hard. But we're going to have fun. So I put it on Instagram in August of last year, almost a year ago. 48 hours later, sold out. 10 spots, done, gone, finished, filled. And I started communicating with the women that had signed up. And I knew like three of them personally, but everyone else had found me on Instagram or Facebook. Is that not crazy? That is crazy. God, because it used to be so hard to fill a host of trips. So hard. And I was like, okay, so there is a demand for this. And I started emailing them, tell me a little bit about yourself. How long have you been fly fishing? I never do this with my men's groups, but I wanted to with the women just to see where we were. Who who are you? I'm curious. Like, what does your profile look like? I, I mean, I feel like I'm the only woman out there besides you that loves this stuff, you know? And um, And it was so interesting. I had lots of entrepreneurs, mothers that are kind of wanting to refine themselves or get out of the house and do something different or learn something. I had one mom who has two sons that love to fish and she wants to be a part of their party. There's lots of that. She wants to be able to fish with them. I had 
you know, it's interesting. I had two younger girls whose husbands do not like to fish, but they do, and wanted to find other women that they could fish with. And it was amazing. I had this group of 25-year-olds too. I think the oldest girl, she'd like me to call her a girl, was uh, 58 at the time and 59 now. Maybe, maybe she just, Julie B just turned 60. And I, I mean, I'll just sum it up. It was one of the finest weeks of my life. Mm-hmm. It was amazing. These girls brought their A-game. And some of them couldn't cast. You guys, you girls know who you are. Couldn't cast <laughs> 10 feet. And others were good. We had the whole gamut. But what I did is I took what I had done in years of my hosting my friends in Belize, and I decided to do a theme night every night. We had reggae night. I assigned women that didn't know each other. A lot of these women came not knowing another soul. Yeah. It was amazing to me. And they probably left as lifetime friends. Oh, they call themselves mares, strippers, and hookers. See, finally, you, you welcome to the world. Yeah. I'm telling you, my women's trips and classes are the best things that happen to me. They're awesome. They are just as perverted as I am, for starters, <laughs> all right? Secondly, the, it, it's a bond that never goes away. Even if you don't talk for five years, you see each other again, and you're like, sister, what's going on? Yeah. No, we, we text. We're on a text group. Um, I, I think we're texting daily, and this was last April. So they're like, where are we? Mare, where are we going next? <laughs> and I was like, okay, let's go to Bahamas. So half the group already signed up for Bahamas, where I'm, you'll see that on my list for next May. Unfortunately, we were supposed to go to Abaco, and um, just heart just really goes out to those guys at Marsh Harbor and just my friends there. But um, so we quickly moved it to South Andros. We want to continue to support the Bahamas in every way possible. And so we just moved it to Nervous Waters and Oliver's other lodge, and they're going. And but they were like, but Mayor. We don't want to wait a year until we all fish together again. And I'm like, oh gosh, I'm looking at my calendar. What am I going to do? What am I going to do? And I found this weekend between all this travel where I didn't have anything planned. And they're like, you know, you always talk about your favorite redfish. You know, that's your favorite. You know, you wear your necklace. It has a redfish on it. And I was like, they're like, will you will you take us there? We want to learn this. We love what you, all those pictures we always see of you. And that's a great fishery, especially for the new gals, right? For the new girls. And, um, and two, let me back up on that Mexico trip. What I did is every night I had mayor's minutes and I spent about 15 to 20 minutes teaching a lesson basics. So, but I will tell you, even the girls that had been fishing for a really long time felt like they got something out of it. We had a conservation night where we talked about BTT. We had um, nights in which we talked about leader building, my favorite knots. We talked about actually just the anatomy of a rod and reel. What does a shooting head mean? You know, what is a feral? And I have a glossary of terms and I had a whiteboard. I mean, it you was are so, so fun. Organized. It's unbelievable. <laughs> well, well, with a cocktail in hand, though. And let know? me just put it into perspective for people listening. Meredith sits down and she goes, let me just look at my talking points. And then you pull out this document. I mean, it has a, it has a letterhead on it, Meredith. <laughs> and I'm looking at this right now. I mean, this, this list of your travel, I think you might be the most organized person I've ever had on the show. You know, if you came to my house, you wouldn't think that. I'm a bit of a messy, but I have to have some structure to the messiness in order to live my life because I would never make my plane if I didn't. Are you still able to stay organized on your hosted trips and fish or are you finding that you have to end up working? No, I fish. I do this whole thing to fish, share my love with it, to teach on the water. But I, you know, I do it to fish. 
Right. Bottom line. And everybody that signs up with me knows, you know, I don't, I'm not a guide. I don't come from a guide background. And I know there's a wonderful host out there that are, and they offer something that I, I can't, um, in, in the capacity of have, having been a professional guide. I mean, I look at Yako Lucas, who has traveled all over the world, and I would think is kind of one of the, our greatest hosts out there and what he can teach and educate all of his clients with. And, um, I just offer something different, but I, I do go as an angler. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady. Live only on Netflix. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So let me get back to where we got derailed because we got derailed on, ob- on obstacles and barriers. But let's get back to your timeline. So we're in the 90s. You've okay. fallen in love with fishing. You're getting away with being kind of awkward. At some point, do you think to yourself, I want to be a guide or I want to be an instructor? Did you think that maybe you wanted to fly fish for a living? No, never entered into my mind. I just, I, I was always conditioned that I would go into corporate America. Okay. And so I just, I mean... It was never going to be a profession. And I think wisely, that was one of the reasons my dad locked me in saying, hey, I'll pay for you your insurance mm-hmm. on your car and your health for those four months as long as you have a job to go back to because he was afraid that I might get out there, get swept up in the environment and maybe become a guide or something like that. Would they care if you were happy? Um. No, I don't know. You know, that's a good question. I never thought about it because it just wasn't, it, it, and I didn't feel drawn to be either. I, I went out there for a purpose, had a great summer, um, got fired from my job real quickly. I was not meant to be a waitress. I'm <laughs> no. very terrible. I'm dyslexic for those of you that don't know. Um, and that's not a good quality to have if you're trying to be a waitress. So, no, I, and I went off and I went into corporate America and never thought twice about it. I mean, so glad that I had learned fishing, continued to take what I learned, apply it in Belize. Um, so no, never thought about it again at all. And just fished when I was with, you know, my family on the weekends or down at our place or whatever. Yeah. And okay. Then, Talk to me about this business that you started. Okay. I'm fascinated. I did not know that when you, oh, you sat didn't? down. Okay. No, I oh, had I didn't no know idea. Okay. Okay. So that's, yeah, that's actually how I supported myself through all of this. And as you've gotten to know me, that's what's paid the bills. Okay. So the elephant in the room is, are you a trust fund baby? Like you sound like you come from an affluent <laughs> family and, and I know that you want to be, be here as well to address some of these yeah, things. Thank so you. Talk to me. I mean, was your dad you. your sugar daddy? Yes. And the answer is no, he was not my sugar daddy. And, um, you know, I really loved how my dad did give 
us financial independence because I see in today's generation a lot of parents, I think, entitling their kids to too much. And um, no, as I stated earlier, I was cut off the day that I graduated from college. One thing that they did do for me, and I'm so thankful for this, is that they gave me an education. And my dad said if I ever wanted to continue my education, he would, after college, then pay for further education. But um, I never went back. But no, that that was the best thing that he ever did. And actually, that even feeds into how I started my business because I worked a year in commercial real estate. I was doing um, building apartments. I was heading up their kind of research department there and marketing. I loved it. And I, again, love selling and have a knack for it. But I got invited to a bridal shower. Two of my coworkers were getting married and the, the man, the woman invited, you know, 20 friends to a paint your own pottery studio in Atlanta where I was living. The girls all painted the plates. The boys were all asked to paint the bowls. So at the end of it, it was a set of dishes for the bride and groom. And it was Aww. the cutest thing ever because they chose five colors. So no matter how you painted it, they were going to match. And I just thought that that was brilliant. I was like, this is the Great coolest idea. thing ever. Yeah, Customized pottery. This is just, duh, awesome. And around that time, I was having a lot of friends getting married. We were right out of college. And there was a huge wave of, I mean, I think 12 of my friends got married in the first two years. So I started painting because that's, you know, my love. I started painting on the wedding gifts, picture frames, platters with their names on it, little, you know, illustration of a bride and groom, the, the wedding date or whatever it happened to be. And one day the owner of the pottery shop um, saw me greeting people and telling the people that had just walked in, the customers, what I was doing. And he's like, God, you, you work harder on my customers than my own employees. Would you ever be interested in opening up a shop for me? We're, we're starting to maybe franchise out and we'd love... We'd love new owners. And meanwhile, what was going on in my head is I had got my first review at work and it had come back that I needed to wear my pantyhose and shoes more often around the office. And I, I just... Wait, I don't understand. Okay. I, I just, I don't like pantyhose and I don't want to wear pantyhose. And Wait, they, I, they were telling you to wear a skirt or telling you that you had to wear pantyhose underneath your skirt? No, no, no. It was a requirement back then. I don't know if you knew that. In the mid nineties, everyone had to wear pantyhose. Like under the pants? No, no, no. Like you would wear like dress, like I would have a little dress suit on, you know, with a little jacket and a matching skirt. Right. You know that like. Yeah. 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 So you were wearing a skirt already, but you just. Yeah, but I had bare legs and, Uh, and I hated pantyhose. They make me itch. Like I just don't like them, you know? And control top. I mean, that gives you just I know cramps. Yeah, like no. it's the worst. <laughs> yeah. And the news the, the pantyhose. I mean, fishnets is something else. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just awful. So anyway, they told me I need to wear pantyhose and shoes more often around the office. And I was like, you know what? I think I need to leave the corporate world. This is not for me because I don't like wearing shoes. So, <laughs> and I'm sitting here barefoot, by the way, right now. Um, and so I said, well, what am I going to do if I? leave here. But I knew I wasn't happy working for somebody else. And I've always been a salesperson. I mean, from the time I was a little girl, I was cutting mistletoe out of the tree at the age of six and wrapping up red ribbon, sitting on the sidewalk and selling mistletoe or lemonade or whatever it happens to be. I I just, I love to sell. And so I was like, I got to do something, but I want to work for myself. So I started going back to get my MBA. Long story short, this is when I got introduced to the Paint Your Own Pottery Studio when the guy asked, do you want to open one for us? So I went back to my parents and I said, hey, I've had an idea. What if I start my own paint your own pottery studio? And my dad's like, are you crazy? Oh. Are you nuts? You're going to leave corporate America. You had four job offers coming out of college. You're making great money. You're going to leave that 
to go open a retail store? No, you're crazy. But I was serious. And so I, I, I went back and I, the more I started thinking about it, the more I was like, I was really gravitating to this idea because I love to paint. I love people. I love to sell. Like it was just, it was, it was perfect. And so I, I wrote a business plan. I got with the SBA in Atlanta. I met with two different owners. There was 12 studios in Atlanta. And I told the guy, I don't want to open a franchise for you, but I will move to another town and I'd like to open my own and I'll pay you if you'll open your books to me to allow me to know how you profit and loss and what your expenses are. And so that's what I did. I paid him a consulting fee and he kind of, idea. yeah, he kind of opened up his numbers to me because I wasn't going to be direct competitor to him. And I started looking at the cities where most of my friends had gravitated to after Vanderbilt. And that was Austin and San Diego and San Francisco. And I went out to each of those markets, looked at the market and they were already saturated. They already had paint your own pottery studios and so I was like, well, gosh, what now? My dad saw now I had a business plan and was serious about it. So he's like, well, why don't you look at Houston? I'm like, God, dad, I don't, I don't want to live in Houston. I went to boarding school. I haven't lived there since I was 15. I, I just don't. Houston's concrete jungle. It's not pretty. People are nice. But what he said to me was like, Meredith, it's the perfect place. You know it. You did real estate here for so many years working for the, a brokerage house. You know the market well. You know where you should be. There's only one paint your own pottery studio and Atlanta was supporting 12 at the time. And you've got the moral support of your family here. And so I was like, you know what? Good point. So I said, well, will you help me? And I had come up with a budget of what I needed to do. And he said to me, and I figured out what I needed. I need $180,000 to start my business. So it's a chunk. And I I had about... And back then too. Oh, yeah. And I had about probably saved maybe $4,000, you know, for my job. I was living pretty large in my twenties and um, I had a car and I had a cat. Yes, I do like cats and dogs. I like animals. Sadly with my travel today, I can't have them anymore, but I I digress. Uh, So dad's going to the bank for money or so so this is where my dad did me the biggest favor ever. He said, you know what, Meredith, I'll underwrite you. I believe in you. I'll do that. And I was like, yes, great. 24 hours later, he calls me in to his house. I wasn't living with him. And he calls me and he says, hey, I want to talk to you. Please accept my apology. I'm wrong. I'm not going to give you a penny. That would teach you nothing about business. But what I will do is I will be your biggest cheerleader. I will introduce you to people. I will make relationships for you with banks. And I will, I will make those introductions, but I'm not going to give you a penny. And it was the best thing that he ever did for me. And so I went out and what I did is I got um, a loan at the bank. Well, okay, so here's how it worked. He told me that I did, I did need his help, but he, okay, this is how it worked. I went out and wrote, um, got equity partners. So I went around to family, friends, family. My, my own uncle said no to me. I mean, I, it was tough. And it I presented be. and I said, here's what you would get if you invest in me and my company. Several men that had offered me jobs to come work for them after college actually invested in me. And it just showed me that they believed in me. They were like, we don't know anything about pottery or this concept, but we believe in you and anything that you put your mind to, we're going to be behind you. And that was really cool. And so my dad said, you go raise half of it and whatever is remaining, I will do a, I will not co-sign on a loan from the bank, 
because all I was worth at that point was a car and a cat and right. my $4,000. <laughs> um, but he said, what I'll do is I will put your brother and sister as partners in it, and I will put up a letter of credit that expires after a year. So it was great because it gave me this financial independence. He did not give me money. The bank, I had to learn how to you know, pay off my loan. Um, I had my monthly loan payments and it was the best learning experience and going in front of all these people and having to present my business and give an elevator speech and know what my performa said if we had done a good year, a low year and whatever. Well, needless to say, I raised the money, most of it. I only had to get a small portion from the bank, which was great. I found the space and leased it. And within a month, I was in the black it was a pure success. It one was just month? one month. It's like usually five years. Yeah. It was incredible. I was packed from morning to night, day one. I sold wine and beer. I was the first one to kind of go out and do that. I was in my 20s, remember? And that was important mm-hmm. to me. So I added that to it. <laughs> um, big, huge law firms were coming in and having about 100 people come to the studio and all paint coffee mugs. Oh my goodness. How big so, was the studio? You know, it was only about 1,600 square feet, but we could hold about 100. Mm-hmm. And it was great. Were you teaching? Um, yeah. So I worked in the store every hour of every day. Often I would sometimes sleep in my store. I mean, I lived and breathed it. I knew I needed a second location within a year. So I opened one a year later and then I continued to grow and grew to about five um, different units and our locations over several years and then started franchising the concept as well. Whoa. So, and that's a whole nother podcast for another time and business, but um, franchising is not easy. And I ended up closing those franchisees and, and then sold last year after 20 years. And it was amazing. And it's taught me a lot about business and life and making mistakes and picking yourself up and moving forward. And and it was you. It was me. Congratulations. So, I wish I had a drink in hand. I would toast thank you, you on that right now. So to dispel those, you know, yes, I grew up in a, in a wonderful family that had, my dad was a self-made man, also was cut off by his father um, once college was done, but he made his own wealth and did, has done well and we were blessed. And so, yes, I got exposed to some beautiful things growing up and- I can't fault my parents for where I was born, but um, I appreciate all that they've exposed me to. Yeah, geez, those so, are some great lessons, huh? Yeah, no, really good lessons, really good lessons. So did you get to fish in between? Yeah, so I think my main story on fly fishing, how I ended up here today in front of you is, again, thanks to my dad, 2005, he got invited on a men's trip, and you may or may not have heard this story, and um, a, a man bailed at the last minute. It was a fly fishing trip to Alphonse Island in the Seychelles. Oh, cool. It was a last minute thing, but um, they were looking for a 12th angler and looked around, couldn't find any guys. My dad's like, I really would like to put my, my daughter up for this spot. And they're like, no, 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 men's group, men's group. But my uncle was going on the trip and I knew... About four of the other men on the trip were dads of friends of mine. And they're like, oh, we know Meredith. She's cool. You know, she's, 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 yeah, she'll fit. She'll fit. So I got the invite and that was in 2005. Never had thrown anything other than an eight weight um, because all I had done in Belize was bonefish. I didn't, I wasn't aware really that there were tarpon and permit at that point. So I went to the Seychelles and that was my first real fly fishing trip. Well, I got ruined. I mean, I got ruined. Oh, How would. do you start at the top? I mean, it's, it's, it's the best of the best Yeah, <laughs> in, in terms of sight fishing. I mean, it is the best of the best. And and did you have a good week? It was incredible. Oh, no. And, and I just remember, I think my dad and I stood on one flat one day, and we, we doubled up nine times. And I, I even have a picture of 
it's an up close of dad and me in the background, we both have bent rods and we're air high fiving. And it was just, it was just like that. And I clicked with this group of men. I kind of became a surrogate mother to them. Now, Ernie, did you put on your sunscreen? You know, and I was always taking care of them a little bit. Yeah. And that... You have like um, checklists. Checklists, yeah, to make sure that I need to keep these men in order. I mean, they need it. They kind of need a mom. And so um, I got pulled into this group of men. And for the next 10 years, that group and I traveled together with my dad. And that was my Christmas present from him every year was this trip. And did, and in various places? Various places we went. Their favorite was the Seychelles. So we went there, you know, five different times. But every other year we go to Venezuela or Christmas Island or Turks and Caicos. So it was always salt water. And then a spinoff of that group started going to, or they had been going to Alaska and one guy backed out. And so I, they, I got the invitation of this very coveted spot. One guy quit going. And so I got, I got in. Right. I got I got the bid of an all men's group again. Fourteen men in their seventies. This hosted trip thing is there. all clicking now. Yeah, yeah, how it all came to be is is, is clicking rapidly. Here. Yes. So okay. I've I've been I used to traveling with men and making sure everyone's where they need to be. Yeah, you're hosting and, it anyway. Yeah, I'm hosting it anyway. <laughs> even though I'm the youngest one on the on the trip, but um, so I do. I thank those men for you know allowing me to come along to be a part of their boys club and. Um, I think a lot of them saw in me too this passion for fishing and how much I was enjoying it. And so where the transition happened is, you know, dad's like, I'm not going to, I'm not going to underwrite you to go fishing all the time. He's like, you know, I'll pay for these two trips. And, um, but the other men in the group were doing other trips and dad loves mom and mom doesn't love to fly fish. So he, you know, they, he didn't do it a lot, but he did these two trips with me a year and was not really interested in doing much more besides, you know, Canada or whatever. And so these other men, though, were like, they knew I was running a successful company and could travel because I was doing a lot of mission work at this time and traveling to uh, Russia and South Africa and Zambia and things to work with kids. But um, so they knew I had the travel bug. They knew I had the time and freedom because I ran my own company to travel. So they started alerting me to trips that I could get on for like nothing or for free because they knew I was ran a pottery shop. I wasn't some 70 year old man that had made gazillions. So I was, I called it pennies for pottery. That's what, I mean, I was kind of more pennies than they were more dollars. <laughs> so they, they would call me and they're like, okay, well, there's a last minute cancellation. If you pay a thousand dollars, you can go down to Bolivia. So I got on this trip that I would have otherwise never been able to afford at that point in my game. And it was all because my dad's friends just would alert me to when one of their friends would back out. And they would allow me to take that spot. And th- that Bolivia trip is one of the ones that changed, changed my life and introduced me to tailwaters. And um, yeah, is that when you started doing more actual hosted trips? Yes. Was that through tailwaters? Yes. I mean, that's a, do you want the whole story? Cause I mean, yeah. it's a long story. I do. Let me think. Um, 12, yeah, no, yeah, I want the whole story. Okay. Let's, I'm going to, I'm going to pull up my timeline um, just so that I stay on track because it kind of gets complicated in there. So in 2005, went to the Seychelles, right? I love that you have your timeline written out. You are just so (laughs) beautifully unique and I love it and don't ever change. Sorry. Nerdy. I don't know what you call it. I love it. And I need to see this photo of you too before. Okay. Oh no. Okay. Actually, I kind of want to show it to you while you're on so you can freak out. Let me see it. Okay. Well, do you want, okay. You want to do it right now? Yes. Oh my gosh. Okay. So I have them on my phone. I have a whole bunch of them. I can't believe I'm showing you this. Um, in an album called Special. 
because my parents always said I was very special. Like helmet special? Oh, can you say that nowadays? Oh, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what you can and can't say. <laughs> Me neither. I just, I'm a lover of people, so they know that I'm not saying it in a negative way, hopefully. But yes, I was special. Special. Let me. I'm gonna... So you're naturally a blonde. Um, like you look like a blonde. Yeah, I'm. I'm. I'm a. You'll see. Like if I, as a young child, I was definitely blonde. Then I tended to go a little pink purple in college. Really, uh, I died. I was a bit of a rebel. Got into the Cure. We can go into that. Yeah, some of my widespread panic, Grateful Dead days. But you were pretty churchy, right? Yeah. Oh, love Jesus. Yeah. Like, you but were, yeah, you can <laughs> love the Grateful Dead and love Jesus. No, but you, you know? weren't like into drugs or anything like that. Oh, no, not into it. No. No. Okay. So yeah, yeah but so you were just like a regular. I was good. Yeah. yeah. And so yeah, everyone struggles and rebels, and I was a rebellious teen, and yeah. But yeah. you always found yourself. I do. I, yeah. you know, at the core of me, I have a, I have a strong foundation, and so that doesn't mean that I don't make mistakes and do things that don't represent my faith correctly. But it's there, and I, you know, my faith is definitely a part of me, and I hope that in all I do, I shine God's light and love to people. Yeah, I didn't know you did mission work. That's really yeah. incredible. Oh, I love it. Yeah. I love working with kids and just bringing light to dark places. How long did you do that for? You know, uh, started in 1998. Actually, the summer that I started the Mad Potter, I started Mad Potter in April of 98 and then felt the call. Um, I was sitting in church one day where I audibly felt, and I know that will weird a lot of people out, out, out there, but I audibly felt God saying, we were praying for a mission group that was about to go to Russia, and I audibly heard him say, you need to be on that trip. And so I go after up after church and I said to the pastor, I was like, is there any spaces available? I just feel like I'm supposed to be on that trip. And, um, and I, was, I was a youth pastor for a high school group at the same time and leading a bunch of high schoolers. And, and I just, I don't know why, but I felt called. And he said, no, it's all, it's all booked up. We were full group. 24 hours later, I got a phone call and he's like, actually someone just bailed. Do you want in? And I was like, yeah, I don't know how I'm going to do this. I just started my own company, but I'll hire the right people and put people in place to keep it running while I'm gone. And yes, I went in. And that was in 1998. I went to St. Petersburg to work with orphans at a sports camp. For how long? How long were you gone? For, um, for 10 days and um, just loved it. And we were there just to bring light and love. You know, that's, that's kind of, I feel like my calling, it's not to say, believe or go to hell, you know, or anything like that. I'm not doing anything. I call it friendship evangelism. It's just meeting them where they are and loving them and playing with them. And then if asked, why are you doing this? Why have you come? It's because I want to tell you, God loves you. And there's someone greater out there that cares about you. And that while you might not have, sorry, I get emotional, while you might not have an earthly father, you've got one in heaven. And I'm here to tell you that. So... So I did that. Um, I did that by myself the first year. I came home. I was glowing. My mom's like, I want in. So the next year, she came with me. My dad was like, next year, I'm, I'm in. I want to experience. I see that this has changed your life. The following year, my brother and sister came. <laughs> so then it ended up kind of being a family thing. They were in careers in their lives where they couldn't c- continue to go, but I did. And so I continued to go with my mom and dad to Russia for 14 years and watched those children, the same children, grow up. And then we, you know, we started as like just playing games with them, then to going into sex education. What happens in Russia a lot is that these orphans, they struggle with sexual abuse within their dorm. And then they go into college dorms and then in those dorms are school dorms. And so you're having orphans having orphans. Right. And so we go into, you know, just sex ed. 
101. Then we went into career counseling as they got older and helped them find jobs. And so it's just really neat. So now if you look at my Facebook page, if you see a bunch of Russian names on there, a lot of them are my kids, which is really cool. I'm so happy you're sitting here. I had no idea about any of this. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, it's crazy. But, um, and then in 2005, went to the Seychelles, met a bunch of South African guides. And one of them told me about the AIDS pandemic that was going on in South Africa. So that led me to start investigating that. And I was already working in an HIV baby home in St. Petersburg as well. So I had a lot of knowledge about it. So I wanted to understand what was going on in sub-Saharan Africa. So I built a team of missionaries in 2006 and went over there for the first time to kind of figure out what the state of this was and was just blown away that, you know, one in three is infected in several areas. And um, there are thousands, if not millions, of kids living on their own. And so I started doing trips over there. Anyway, we can get way sidetracked with all of that. And um, yeah, it's part of who I am. And that's where I'll get back to this Bolivia trip. Because, you know, in an ideal world, what would I be doing? And it would be fly fishing the globe, but bringing light and love to those communities in which I go to fish. That's my hope and dream one day to do. Why was Bolivia such a standout moment for you or standout trip? Um, So what had happened, and that's where I want to kind of refer back to here, had happened in 2001 was I had gotten an, and I'm going to go, I'm going to go back two years before our year before Bolivia. I had gotten invited to a lodge in the Bahamas. Two of my dad's friends were going and knew the owner of Deepwater K, a man by the name of Paul. And Paul's from Houston. And he had extended the invite for four people to come. And two of my dad's friends were going and they're like, hey, do you want to invite a friend and come with? And I was like, absolutely. And he's like, "All you, everything's taken care of, even the flights. Paul had a plane. So he's like, all the flights are taken care of. All you have to do is pay for your guide and split it with your friends. So I invited my friend, my fishing buddy, Steve, to come with me. And so we're with Paul. We go on his plane and we we land on the runway. And Paul said, I have a surprise for you. We have shut down the entire Deepwater K Lodge because we're filming an episode or we're filming a season of Buccaneers and Bones. And there is an actor that has just landed right in front of us, and his name is Liam Neeson. So, you know, I knew the name, but I don't watch scary action films. So (laughs) I didn't know a lot, And um, but I do love this movie, Love Actually. I love chick flicks. Don't get me started (laughs) there. Um, I'm a a hopeless romantic. And um, so I'd see him in that. So, you know, we get off the plane, he gets off the plane, and we're all standing. There's a little hut there where you you know, you get processed into the Bahamas and do your passport and everything. And I have my fish pond Dakota kind of around me with my stickers. It's kind of a lot of people recognize me because I, I love my stickers on my Dakota. And, and he goes in his cute, you know, Irish brogue, he's like, do you fly fish? And I, I'd love to replicate his voice. I can't do, I can't do accents. So <laughs> he goes, do you fly fish? And I said, I do. And he goes, do you know what you're doing? And I was like, you know, most of the time I, I try to, I try to know what I'm doing. And he's like, do you do a lot of salt water? And I said, I do. And he's like, well, I don't. And they're going to be filming me this week. Will you help me? Right. So that was, that was my introduction to Liam. And we hit it off as fast friends. And every afternoon he would get off the water so frustrated because he's a trout guy. And 
he and so I started giving him lessons on how to double haul and just how to shoot his line, how to even roll cast out more than five feet. Right. Um, and we just had a silly old time. But the producers of the show that were filming this Bucks and Bones program that um, was going on there, Buccaneers and Bones, it was on the Outdoor Channel, and he hadn't been able to make it for the main. Uh, filming of the season, so that's that they right, were. Gonna, I was. I flew in to do the main season. That's right. And I just missed Liam. That's right. And was so devastated, so bummed. And you are the lucky bitch who got to teach him how to cast. Damn it! Yes, I was there. And I, I, you know, I give Liam a lot of credit for where I am today. And I'll. Uh, t- so this okay, is how yeah, it all. Yeah, this is how it all happens. So I love all these pieces clicking. Isn't this fun? Because it is a complicated story, and that's why I have to have this timeline because it's like <laughs> so integrated. And I'm like, okay, what happened first, and how did that happen? And so the producers of the show said to me, "Who are you?" I'm like. I'm Meredith McCord and I'm a pottery shop owner out of Houston, Texas. And they're like, no, no, no. Like, who are you? Like, you can cast. And I'm like, no, no, I just, I love fishing. Wee! <laughs> you know, and they're like, so you're, you're a nobody. And I'm like, well, I mean, my parents think I'm someone, but, um, someone special. And I'm still going to show you that picture. But, uh, and they're, and they're like, well, have you ever thought about doing TV work? And I'm like, well, does it, mean free fishing. Again, I'm, I was always looking for a free avenue to go fishing because I, I just didn't have thousands of dollars to support my habit. And, and a lot of people, that's, I think, why they think I'm a trust fund kid because they see me going exotic places. But I, I work the deals. Like I, I work to find these, these opportunities. And I work hard to, if I get invited in, to give lodge owner, not like you're a lodge owner was asking you to give. <laughs> right. um, but I give them, you know, photographs or whatever they would like for me to do or bring clients in or whatever. Like a marketing so, trade. Yeah. It's a marketing trade. So anywho, they said, have you ever thought about doing TV? I said, does it mean free travel and free fishing? And they said, yes, it does. And I said, well, then I, I'm definitely interested. And they're like, well, will you do a screen test? And I said, sure. So they did one right there. And Liam's like, whatever she does, I'll be a part of. Like, I'll, I'll back this girl. I like her a lot. She's, this is a great girl. And she's helped me, you know, to learn how to cast. And, um, so for the next two or three nights, this was halfway through the week, the whole goal of the, like the dinner tables became around me and figuring out how I could become someone because I was a nobody in the fishing world. And just because I love to fish, they said that they couldn't put me on TV because I was a nobody. Cause you, so, you were on the next season, right? So now you were, I think you were on in 2012. So this is what happened. Paul was very, the owner of Deepwater K said, well, first of all, you got to get involved with BTT. I'm on the board. It's a great organization. You're going to meet great people. You're, you need to meet these people. If you're going to play in this industry, you need to know the players. And one of the things I haven't stated is that my parents didn't believe in TV. So we did not grow up watching TV. You don't watch football. You play football in the backyard. You don't watch a fishing show. You fish. And so I didn't know who Flip Pallet was. I didn't know who Lefty Cray was, sadly. Like, yes, maybe I was in this little cocoon, but I, I didn't know. I didn't know. So I decided to get involved with BTT. And of course, I love conservation because I want to have fish for the future. Who doesn't want fish for the future, okay. right? So I decided that to meet some people. So to network. And then this idea of record fishing came out. Oh, is it clicking? Wait, so was that part of their marketing ploy though, to get you to be somebody? 
You got it. Oh, wow. So it wasn't there. It was just like this organic group effort of people saying, how can you legitimize your name? Oh, yes. Okay. This makes, so this all makes I didn't sense. even know that there were world records for fish. I had no idea. Again, put my head in the sand. I don't know. No, I just fished. I mean, I don't, I don't care. Like world record, what? Okay. Yeah. But I love a challenge. And I love, and I was like, that sounds interesting. Let's try what, what do I have to do? Where, do? where are these records kept? You know, I never had heard of the IGFA. And so I started doing a little research. And I come to find out that women had just been broken out from the men. Mm-hmm. And I remember all of this. Yeah. Going I can't believe this is your timeline. I'm so happy that you're here right now. <laughs> it's fascinating. <laughs> well, good. I'm glad. <laughs> I mean, it is. I mean, this is, it, 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 it's so, and again, I believe in God. I think it's so interesting how he orchestrated this whole thing. I mean, it's a very webby um, story, but it, it's just, there was a, there was a higher, orchestra master behind it all, I believe. And so I started investigating. I found out about IGFA. I called them. I talked to Jack Vitek, who was head of records at the time, and Jason Strautweiser. I butcher his name every time me, because me it's too. so hard. But um started peppering them with questions like, how do I do this? They were so helpful. They were so excited that there was going to be a woman that was going to go out, chase some of these records. So I started looking locally. Again, I didn't, I don't have a lot of funding, so I need to do something close to home. I wanted to start some, with something I knew, and that was redfish. Ah, again, another puzzle, puzzle piece. Okay, yeah. Got it. And so I um, I hired a guide who definitely thought I could get it done, who believed in me, and that's a lot of my record fishing is it's a partnership all the way. I, you know, Out of 180 world records, I would say 170 of them wouldn't have been made possible without the help of my guide. You have 180 world records? I do. Well, let's be honest. I have 165 to date that are have been approved. I have 11 that have been tested, everything tested out. We just need Neil's signature. And then I have four more that I just got last week or two weeks ago in Brazil. So by that time, I'll have 180. Um, so what do you do? You just, just go fishing, but make sure that your leader's like a yeah. right line. So it's not and like... Sometimes it's, it's intentional. Okay. And we can get into that. But, um, and while, why even continue to do it? Because really, I just needed the one for, to make myself legitimate. Because they be, did bring you on to Buccaneers and Bones, right? You so did a, I did. Season I, in I, Belize, I think. I did. Yeah. I did. Long story short, went out, didn't catch the record, broke a lot of tippets, was looking for a big redfish. I needed a 28 pound redfish, um, lost a ton, learned a ton, learned all sorts of different knots. I knew what now, does monofilament tie well to fluoro? I like I learned my learning curve on this whole sport went up. It was like I went to graduate school. Right. I went and got my master's degree. And I was just like kind of a take it or leave it, like let guides tie my own knots and whatever. But when I started record fishing, I was like, ah, I don't want to have to blame you if my fly comes off. Yeah. It's, it's going to be on me. So I started doing everything for myself. And then started reading the rules and educating the guides I was going to be fishing with. So it was really cool. December 1st, 2012, Louisiana, Venice. I catch my very first world record. It was on after 11 days of trying. And last hour, 2 o'clock in the afternoon, we saw her. We knew it was her. 
it takes a lot of patience sometimes looking for records because you're out there and you're looking for the golden egg. The right fish. The right fish. Yeah. You have to sometimes pass up some beautiful fish. I have something called kryptonite. My guides know what it means. It means that that fish is too perfectly presenting itself to me. At, exactly, I'm a, left, a lefty. At my one o'clock. And if they're too perfect, then I just have to cast and I have to catch that fish real quick. And then I can get it out of my system and we can go back to record fishing. But without fail, the moment that I hook up with the 20 pounder who comes floating along, it's a record fish, you know, so you, you got to be really diligent. But it's so fun. It's like, uh, like, okay, so my dad's kind of a nerd and he loved uh, my favorite holiday is Easter. Right. Okay. Why? Easter egg hunting. Who doesn't love hunting Easter eggs? But I wasn't always about getting the most. And my mom would put Bible verses in them. Dad would put the candy. But my favorite thing was the golden egg. And the golden egg, as a child, would have a silver dollar. That was a lot of money. Right. Yeah, it was a lot of money. (laughs) And then as we got older, Dad continued to hide eggs for us up until our mid-20s. Aw. Yeah, we hunted eggs in our mid-20s. And that picture, the special picture I'm going to show you, was Easter. Me holding it basket of eggs. Okay, let me see this picture. Okay, I've got my picture. Whoa. Whoa. Oh my God. That's your hair? <laughs> yeah. Is it still frizzy like that? You or know, like I've curly? learned how to tame it. But you have curly hair? I have. You know what? As I hit puberty, it, it calmed. And it, I mean, it's dark. Uh, yeah, it was dark. But you know, like, here's cute. Like, this is before my awkward years. Like, that's blondish. You, you know, that's more blonde. a lot of hair, though. A lot of hair. And then mom decided to cut it off at one point. Oh, and then what oh, you saw, you the, like the, an frizzy, angel holding those fish. the frizzy hair came after that started growing out. Like, right. she cut it really short because she didn't know quite what to do with it as I started getting frizzy hair. So that's what happened. Do you have any pictures of in your 20s? Yeah, so... <laughs> And I just want to, and there's nothing wrong with this, but I just want to state, I do like men. And, and in this picture, it, it might be confusing that I'm, my sister and I might play for the other team, but I do like men and there's nothing wrong with playing for the other team, but. Which one are you though? Yeah, exactly. No, seriously. No, seriously. <laughs> Which one are you? Are you the yeah. blonde one? Nope. You're the other one? Yes. No, you're not. Yes, I am. How old are you in this? That was college. Um, and That's I had, college? I had dyed that. My hair actually in that is like a very deep purple. Meredith. Yeah, I know. No. I got addicted to Cool Ranch it's Doritos. Okay. Mm-hmm. It, so it got a little heavy too. I thought you were something no. totally Mm-mm. different in high school. No, no, no. You're beautiful still, but you just yeah. look like a totally different human no, being. I no know. wonder you go to all your school reunions. <laughs> You're like, look at me now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, glasses and everything. Yeah. And I still like, so I had the um, LASIK done. I've had LASIK twice now. But so. I think it's actually really inspiring. <laughs> thank you. you know, and there's nothing wrong. Like you shouldn't be ashamed of what you look like. Well, um, thank you. But you just look like a very different person. As well. I, I was just awkward. Well, yeah. I just I, and we all go through awkward phases. But I totally I didn't judge you. Never. No, I like I've you. loved you since the day I met you. Well, but we I have always hit it off. Yeah. But I always assumed. Yeah. I knew there'd be more from the financial side. There always yeah. is. There yeah. always is. But I always assumed you were just the hot, popular chick. No. Yeah. And popular, but not, not, not hot. Just was a friend to all. Yeah. But I assumed that you look like, look like this. No. Back no. then, you know, like a Southern belle, but that, mm-hmm. I think that picture is so beautifully vulnerable. I mean, you look, okay. Are you going to like shame me into putting this up? Yeah. No, you're not. Yeah. I, I think that, okay. I think it's well, actually- how about this? When the podcasts come out, you call me and I'll depends on how I'm feeling that day. If I'm feeling 
secure enough. You know, all of us girls have our good days and our bad days. And some days I feel strong and some days I don't feel strong. I think so. it's inspiring. <laughs> okay. uh, and I'll even make a deal. I will find the ugliest picture. one. Yeah, oh, sure. I got lots. Like I've got curly hair too. So. Okay. Oh, you do? Not that curly. <laughs> Not that curly. But um, yeah, I'll tell you what we'll do. We'll go. We'll go shot for shot. I'll find one. Okay. And I'll. Oh, I'll do. I'll make it good. I got no shame. I'll find. I'll get. A, okay. Good. A good. Good. Because it's going to be hard to to, to top compete. that. Yeah. It is yeah. going to be hard to top that. Yeah. <laughs> but I will. I'm sure I can find something. Um, and I had a, like. I think I had a unibrow too. Actually. Oh, for sure. I had a unibrow. <laughs> gigantic unibrow. And even in my senior uh, pictures from high school, it, I mean, it went clear across my face. <laughs> you know, again, I just don't know if we knew about waxing. No, I it was different. Know. It was no. so different. And Brooke Shields was cool. She, she was had cool. gigantic eyebrows and That's... so did I. So I thought I was very, I thought I was, I mean, I have another one where you can tell I thought I was cute. You okay, digress. So now that I have uh, uh, an insight into you yeah. in so many ways right now. Um, okay, so then bring me back. So then okay, all of a sudden one, you're on Buccaneers and Bones. So I catch the world record. It takes a couple of months to get approved. Uh, it gets approved. I call up Orion Multimedia, who is running the show, and I said, guess what? I'm a world record holder. And they're like, done. April's going to be on it this year, but you're going to be on it next year. Perfect. And so I was like, yes. Free fishing and travel, right? Um, and but, and your first exposure at, then at that point, right? Yeah, and but I and had that's gone. Why, that explains why it happened so fast. Because all of a sudden I was like, "Wait, who? 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 Yeah, where exactly. Does she, where does she come from?" I'm a nobody. I was a nobody. Remember? <sighs> and but the cutest thing about all of this, and here's where the records come into play. Yep. Is after I had gotten that world record on December first, two thousand twelve, the person that was so excited other than myself and my guide at the time, was my dad. Yeah. He thought I had won the lottery. And he he went around, that was Christmas time, every Christmas party we went to, do you know my daughter, Meredith McCord? She's a world record holder. <laughs> I mean, everywhere we went, my daughter's world record holder. She's a world record holder. It hadn't even been approved yet. Like, <laughs> I didn't know if it was going to even get approved. I had many sleepless nights not knowing if I was going to make it. But, um, and so he just got really, he got all puffed up. It, the joy that he got out of me doing this silly thing, it just, it made me happy, you know? And um, Did he get to see the rest of the... Yeah, <laughs> so he... <laughs> That Christmas, he gave me an eight-way that he had wrapped and made, and it said, Meredith McCord, December 1st, 2012, Venice, Louisiana, 32.58-pound redfish on 16-pound class tippet, and um, that was my Christmas gift. And he was just super—and it was all red, white, and blue because he was a huge patriot. He served in our army, and anyway— he he said, you know what, Meredith? I, I want to see you do this. I love anyone that sets a goal and then achieves it. On our next trip together, will you, can I can I watch you do this and you tell me how you kind of go about figuring out what you want to chase and whatever? And he was truly curious in, in my record fishing. He took a vested interest in it. He just he loved it. So that spring, we were going on our men's trip and me um, to the back to the Seychelles and. Um, Dad was with me when I caught my second and third world record. And Yako Lucas put me on my second world record ever. Oh. Who, you know, you and I both know, he's a dear friend of ours today, but I didn't know him at the time. Yeah. And um, he was just a fabulous guide. 
And dad, again, just got a huge kick out of it. So I just kept kind of doing it here and there. I didn't have a lot of money. So I just looked locally and looked at the record books and looked what I could do just in a local fashion. And, you know, 50 of my world records come from less than an hour from my house in the Trinity River and 10 species on in freshwater are available there. And they had gone and divided out women from... Um, the men on freshwater, they had already done it previously on saltwater, but they had just done it on freshwater. And so it opened up all these vacancies. And I was just like, well, why not? I mean, they're vacant and they're right here and I, I can do it for really little money. And you don't need to kill them. No. So there's so many myths about record chasing. And I know it's not for everybody and all the rules keep changing but I like playing the game. And it's like if solitaire all of a sudden tells me that I have to flip three cards versus two cards, am I going to quit playing solitaire? Not if I like the game. And I like this game. It's it's silly. It's fun. But it gives me a kind of purpose. Do I do it all the time? No. I mean, I probably, if you if I fish 200 days this year, um, maybe 10, 15% are records. I mean, that's it. But when I do do it, and I don't do it if the guide's not into it, the guide has to be bought in. And a lot of them really like it. And I've started getting phone calls now from guides that say, hey, I'll fish you for free. Will you come help me catch this world record? Because I think I really, I'm on some big fish and I think we could really do something. I, I know that you could do it. Yeah. Is it because they get to put their name on it? Yeah. Well, they just, they they know that these big fish can be caught and they their current clients can't make that happen. And so they call me up and say, hey, let's let's do this. Let's document and make them bigger. Because they're out there. So the record books aren't right because I know that there are bigger fish out there, but they're just not documented. So that's what I do. How did tailwaters get involved? Okay. So that goes to the Bolivia story. So one of the trips, so that takes me back to 2000. Hmm. Refer to timeline. Oh, okay. So <laughs> yes, here we go. So <laughs> yes, 2012, uh, while I'm looking for that world record, I no 2013. I do buccaneers and bones. Oh, my college roommate from Vanderbilt is working for a company called Eleven Experience. Eleven Angling. They have Deppler Farms in Iceland. They have Taylor Creek uh, in Crested Butte. They have Scarpridge. Yeah, yeah. So high end stuff. High end stuff. They do heliskiing and they wanted to branch into fly fishing. And they had just started Taylor Creek and had gotten. Um, a man by the name who I didn't know at the time, but we're now good, really good friends because of this hosted trip. And this was my first official hosted trip was for 11. Brian O'Keefe was going to be the host, but they wanted a female fly fisherman to come on and be the female because they had a bunch of couples coming on this trip to Crested Butte. And my college roommate was one of my Facebook friends and had been watching me, you know, kind of evolve with all my fishing. So they're like, well, why don't we invite my college roommate, Meredith, to be the female. So that was actually my first hosted gig was in 2000, in August of 2013. So I did that and was like, God, I really like this. I really like teaching. I like hosting a group, kind of mothering a group or so forth. And um, loved Brian too. He was great. Learned a lot about photography from him. And um, so with that fast forwards, I was still looking for those trips. So one of that happened, Phil was supposed to bring one of his daughters to Bolivia. Phil's wife, Natalie, looks and sees that Bolivia is going to be in the jungle, that there's a lot of things that can hurt you in the jungle. And he's, she's like, pretty much to hell with that. You're not taking our teenage daughter into the jungles of Bolivia. So who gets the phone call two weeks before the trip? 
I do. They know that I own my own company and have flexibility in my schedule. And he goes, I'll work you a deal. If you just pay me back a portion of it and fly yourself down there, I will, you're invited. We would like you to be the fourth of our four people. And what I had done too in my business with Mad Potter is I run all of my inventory purchasing for my business through airline mile cards. So I never paid for a flight. And that's how I financed a lot of my hopping around. Same. And it's something I think that people need to really take from this is that that's uh, how a lot of us pay for our travel. That's right. And it's really offensive when anyone implies that someone's paying for my travel because it's from being strategic on using point systems. Exactly. And that's, I got smart and hotels and airlines I did because I was running this company that was buying enough in inventory that I could underwrite all my travel. Mm -hmm. And so that's how I got to Bolivia. And unfortunately, we arrived to find out that um, the week before there was some massive flooding and um, one of the native Indians had drowned in the water in an accident. And it was just, it was horrible. And then we went out fishing that first day, the rains came again. And the waters came up nine feet. We got stranded so fast. Yeah, so fast. And we got stranded in the jungle for actually nine days. And during that nine days, we couldn't fish. There was nothing to do. So we we would put up mattresses and the guides would teach us how to make little bows and arrows. And we would play games where we put post-it notes on the on the mattresses. We drank them out of the entire bar. Uh, we were worried that we wouldn't have enough food. I mean, it, it was crazy. And we were locked in the jungle because there's a, it's a, our, when you land in the jungle, it's, you're actually landing on the jungle floor. And so when you have too much water, that ground gets too sticky. And so you can't land a little plane in there because they'll just tumble. They'll get stuck and they can't do a smooth landing. So we had to wait for it to dry out. So what I wanted to do because of my missionary background is I wanted to go over. So I went over every day to the village and hung out with the Chamani people. And in particular, the little boy who had witnessed his dad drowning the week before. Oh, he saw it? He saw it. He was on the boat when it happened. And so while we didn't speak the same language, I just sat with him. And I always carry a little picture book, or I used to. I don't anymore. I need to still do this. But it was just a fun picture book of fun things from my life that even though we don't speak the same language, I could point and we could laugh and silly photos and stuff like that. And so I did that. And the more the time that I spent in the village and getting to know the people, the more I started recognizing some basic needs that they had and learning that they didn't know how to swim. Meanwhile, I had started getting into triathlons back in the States. And I had never been in sports growing up, but I felt like, I don't know, I think I had seen JLo on the cover of magazine and said, if JLo can carry her bottom around a tri-field, I can for sure do something. And I don't know how to run, but I'll learn, but I love to swim and I know how to bike, but I've never ridden a road bike. Anyway, did my first one and I came in second place. I had a natural talent. So I really started getting into it. And just like my fly fishing, I started putting people around me that are smarter than me. And I hired coaches and started training. And one of the things I was just a natural at is I'm a swimmer. And that's, that's what I do for exercise. I swim five days a week. I love, I love to swim and I love to compete. And I found out I love to compete and started swimming in adult meets. They have them. You don't get ribbons. So I kind of would like a ribbon, (laughs) but that's another story. And so I decided that after I got home from that trip and we had had terrible fishing, we only got to fish one day, I called up the owners of um, Untamed Angling. Actually, I contacted the fly shop first who had hosted it, and I told them what my idea was. And they're like, I think it's a great idea. Talk to Rodrigo and Marcella. And yeah. I, did, I didn't know them personally like I do now. Now they're really good friends. Great, yeah. And I called them up and I said, what would you think about me coming and teaching swimming? Just 
it's survival swimming, how to starfish, if you're thrown out of a boat, what you need to do to survive if you're getting thrown out on, in rapids or whatever. And they're like, we loved it. I mean, they were so, they wanted to do anything that they could to help this community that had just lost one of the pillars of this, this, you know, tribe. Why are they so weak at swimming? Because I was there for a flash flood as well. Oh, you were? And they were terrified. I saw someone almost drown and, and I couldn't understand why they were, I mean, they were really bad at it. Is it just something that superstition, they don't learn because they have seen it take too many people. And they've seen death happen. And so, therefore, they don't want to get in the water and learn from it because they believe they, they might get taken. Okay. So, it runs really, really deep. And that's what I learned. So, that's why Rodrigo, they too. yeah. And oh. Rodrigo and Marcella were so gracious. And this is when I learned about hosting trips that you could actually go at comped if you bring people. And I, I never knew that. I, you know, I never oh. knew that that was even a possibility. And they said, Hey, we love this idea that you have to come and teach swimming and we'll make a trade. And again, this is all working strategic. This is how I, you guys that are listening out there, it's not money. It's being strategic. And how can you help the lodge? Don't look for yourself. Yes, I want to fish. They all know that. Everybody wants to fish. Yeah, it has to be a win-win. Hang on. This is land. So let me just take this call. It's totally up to you. Do I would you, love the opportunity just to say it all and not feel rushed. I would love so. that too. Like, let's do that. Can we do okay. that? Yeah. Okay. So tomorrow, what's your schedule? And that concludes this episode of Anchored. Be sure to tune in next time when I sit down with Meredith for our second round.